In the last thousand years, no author has created a more beautiful and comprehensive vision of Christian virtue than Dante. While there are just too many great books to read them all in one lifetime, no classical education is complete without a journey through the Divine Comedy. So that's why I'm excited to tell you that on January 29th, my friend Joshua Gibbs will begin the Divine Comedy for Beginners. It's a 12-week online class which covers the whole of Dante's most celebrated work. The comedy, as you know, is an epic which can be reread endlessly and understood on many levels. But the Divine Comedy for Beginners is tailored for readers who are venturing through the comedy for the very first time. The Divine Comedy for Beginners is available from gibbsclassical.com to students aged 15 and up. Of course, if you're a college student or an adult, you're more than welcome to take the class as well. For more information, head over to gibbsclassical.com. Again, that's gibbsclassical.com. Hello and welcome to Close Reads, part four of Walker Percy's book, The Movie Goer. I am Tim McIntosh. And I am Heidi White. And we are so glad that you joined us for this fourth episode on Walker Percy's award-winning book, winner of the 1962 National Book Award uh, and one of Time Magazine's 100 Best English Language Novels. This is Walker Percy's debut novel, The Moviegoer. Uh, Heidi, did you know that Walker Percy, before getting this book published, failed in his attempt to get two previous novels published? Did you know that? I did not know that. Go on. He uh, was in his early 40s. He had written a couple of novels. He had sent them out to presses. And they came back negative. And he had a wife and at least one child. He eventually had two. And <laughs> he was had forsaken his career in the medicine in medicine. And now he was a failed novelist in his early 40s. And he had a house payment. He had a family. And he was wondering what he was going to do. And fortunately, in 61, I think the book was accepted. And then it started to win all of the acclaim that it won in 1962 when it was published. Um, I just think about how, I mean, you know, Walker Percy is one of the great decorated novelists of the 20th century, at least in the United States. And he came this close to apparently just giving up before he got started. It's crazy. It is wow. crazy. And that would have been such a shame because this is a brilliant, brilliant novel. We're in, we're in part four here, Heidi. Uh, this is the penultimate section. Next week, we will read part five and a brief epilogue to the book. So just to kind of um, get us up to speed, in this part of the novel, we've just learned the conclusion of part four, that Banks has returned home from kind of gallivanting with his secretary, meeting his mom, and his extended family returning now, and he finds out through Sam, uh, this jovial, kind of very typical Southern man, that uh, Kate's in trouble. He found Kate having consumed at least part of a bottle of pills, and Binks greets Kate. Everyone kind of keeps wanting Binks to sort of save Kate or to intervene with Kate, while at the same time, everyone is acknowledging that Binks is a lost character. It's a funny, it's a funny scenario that 
Sam and Aunt Emily are so keen to have Binks rescue Kate. Is that what they're trying to do? Or or um, at least kind of befriend Kate in some way? Well, also, they're like, at least Aunt Emily thinks that Binks is just as lost as Kate. Maybe not so self-destructive, but just as lost. Um, it makes me think that everyone wants the blind to lead the blind here, Heidi. Is that what's going on? <laughs> Very Flannery O'Connor. And maybe that's why David compared this novel to Wise Blood, which is a novel about the blind leading the blind. Oh, maybe so. And actually ends with blind characters. I I hadn't made that connection. That's why I I maybe I sounded like a light bulb just popped on top of my head because when David compared this novel to Wise Blood a few episodes ago, I didn't really you kind Understand. of nodded. Like you nodded, and were like, "Oh, sure, David," but it, it didn't really occur to yeah, you. Yeah, well, and oh. I hadn't read. I hadn't read the novel um, at the that point yeah. because yeah. this yeah. is my first time reading the moviegoer. So, but now that you say that, I do have a little bit of a light bulb. A little aha! Oh, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. So, anyway, well done. Made a connection <laughs> for me. Thank um, you. Of my pleasure. So, Banks in this section is kind of. Um, commissioned to help Kate, and he does so in a way that is kind of frowned upon in 1962. They steal away together to Chicago, and he's going to end up at the end of the section getting in trouble with his Aunt Emily for, for running away with Kate. Meanwhile, Kate and Binks go on a trip, just like Binks and Sharon went on a trip. Binks and Sharon went on a trip Uh, down to the beach. They get in his car. They have a wonderful time, sort of, until the malaise hits and until they get into a car wreck, which actually kind of like pulls them from the malaise. Um, So Binks and Kate now are on a train on the way to Chicago where he's attending a convention on stocks Heidi, I'm going to say this. There's a few sections that I want to read from Speak. Uh, this book. Speak now. I, I love Walker Percy. I've read all of Walker Percy's books. This section for me contains kind of the best aspects of Walker Percy. But Heidi, it also has the worst aspects of Walker Percy, the novelist. Mm, is this... Is this a criticism? This is a Mr. criticism. McIntosh? This is a criticism. I spoke with my friend. Our listeners ben. are so happy right now. They always think we're too nice. I'm so excited that you're criticizing the book. I want to hear all about it. We probably are too nice because we pick books that we adore and authors that we adore. And Walker Percy is no exception. But I get frustrated with Walker Percy. Let me start with what I like. I love. Okay. I love how mm-hmm. observational he is and his observations are fascinating. The world that he, the, the way that he sees the world is he has a unique eye. He has a, like a wonderful descriptive pen. I, we read a section from the um, opening chapters of this book talking about uh, the race, the, excuse me, the lace looking like, uh, what do you call it? Sorry. The, oh, yeah, um, like de- a decaying, decaying lace, lace. Or, or rotten lace. It yeah, was yeah, rotten yeah, yeah. Lace. It was beautiful. Like just a perfect sentence. And there are sections like that in part four 
that I love and I find remarkable. Okay. And then I sometimes think, okay, that's a really beautiful section. And why is it in this book? Where are we, where are we going with this? And mm. who are we talking to? And I'm just, I'm just kind of lost. I'll, I'll read a section uh, beginning on page 202. Uh, first full paragraph, second sentence. Chicago is just as I remembered it. This is Banks speaking. I was here 25 years ago. My father brought me and Scott up to see the century of progress and once later to the World Series. Not a single thing do I remember from the first trip but this. The sense of the place, <clears throat> the savor of the genie soul of the place, which every place has or else it is not a place. I could have been wrong. It could have been nothing of the sort, but not the memory of a place, but the memory of being a child. But one step out into this brilliant March day, and there it is as big as life. The genie soul of the place. Wherever you go, you meet and master first thing or be met and mastered. Until now, one genie soul and only one ever proved too strong for me. San Francisco. Up and down the hills, I pursued him, missed him, and was pursued by a presence a powdering of fall gold in the air, a trembling brightness that pierced to the heart, and the sadness of coming at last to the sea, the coming of the end of America. Nobody but a Southerner knows the wrenching, rising sadness of the cities of the North, knowing all about the genie souls and living in haunted places like Shiloh and the wilderness in Vicksburg and Atlanta, where the ghosts of heroes walk abroad by day and are more real than people. He knows a ghost when he sees one, and no sooner does he step off the train in New York or Chicago or San Francisco than he feels the genie soul perched on his shoulder. Heidi, I, I think I know what Walker Percy is talking about. I think I know what he's talking about because I think I've experienced this sort of genie soul in, in cities that have really distinct flavors, New Orleans being one, Chicago being one, New Orleans, I mean, uh, New York being one. So I can kind of, I think I know what Binks is talking about. And on the other hand, I don't know what he's talking about. And I kind of just wonder, well, why is that in this book other than as a sort of descriptor of the locale where Kate and Binks are. They're in Chicago now. Binks has a sense there's a right. genius soul. What, like, help me here. Am I being too critical? No, I, I had the same question when I was reading it, but I, interestingly enough, was going to ask you because you are a Southerner and I am from the West. I'm from California. I'm literally from San Francisco. Oh, really? Which he says is the place. Well, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm not literally from San Francisco. I was born there, but I, um, I lived, I grew up in the Bay area, which is just, you know, about 45 minutes South of San Francisco uh, during the tech boom um, of the nineties. And so I, I know exactly what he's talking about with this genie soul idea. Uh, if you think of a genie, I had to read it a couple times because yeah. I was like, what is he talking about? Same as you. But then I started thinking, okay, so what's a genie? A genie is like a wish granting to be placeless spirit, right? And that makes sense to me in describing the North and the West in, of the United States. Um, that there is this, I grew up 
pretty much completely without any kind of sense of place at all. Interesting. And yeah. part of that was because we moved around a lot. My dad was a pastor. Uh, and so, you know, he, not a lot of pastors have the opportunity to live in one place as they're with their family. Some do, and that's wonderful, but my dad did not. So we, yeah. we moved several times, then he switched careers. And um, so I actually didn't go to the same school for an entire year at one time until I was in fifth grade, uh, which is, you know, mid childhood. So I was just, I had a very kind of disrupted childhood in the sense of place. Like I didn't have like a a house I grew up in. Mm. Um, And we lived in a very, uh, like a booming economy for sure, but also a a place where lots of people had moved to uh, either immigrated from out of the country yeah. or had moved to in order to work in the tech industry. And so there was, I hardly knew anybody who had say grandparents in the same city. Huh. Um, it was, it was like a new place and it had like a lot of energy to it, a lot of optimism, a lot of hope, a lot of wealth. Um, and a lot of like forward thinking creativity, but yeah. almost no sense of identity as its own self, huh. as a place. Um, and so I am endlessly curious about the Southern ethos. Like, I don't get it. Um, <laughs> I don't understand how you could live in the United States and feel like you have some kind of rooted history in this yeah. place. Yeah. Because I didn't grow up like that. And it was not something my parents valued at all. Like there was never any kind of mournful, I wish we could offer you this thing, but, but our family has had to adjust. It wasn't like that. It was like my parents were as perfectly content to be a placeless, kind of unrooted, unahistorical kind of family um, that was just the modern American experience to me. I didn't know there was any other way. And so in looking at this novel, I, I, I say that much less to talk about myself and more to say, I get what it, what it's like to, to, um, live in a place that is like very wish fulfilling, like a genie, but entirely placeless and without its own identity in a certain place. Like to feel like this place is like a genie lamp that will grant me wishes, but it doesn't, but it's it doesn't a little bit offer of a mirage. me an identity. Yeah. And it doesn't offer me an identity. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's what I think he's talking about as contrasted to the Southern ethos, which is your experience. I know you said you didn't think of yourself as a Southerner until you moved away. Yeah. Um, and that, I get that, but you know, in talking about books with you and David, I have learned this is news to me. I have learned through you and David the idea of the South as this like quintessentially American rooted historical tradition and place. Having returned from the Pacific Northwest back to Atlanta, I have a stronger sense of that, I think, than ever. Because as you mentioned, when I lived here before, you know, I knew I was from the South. I just didn't consider myself a Southerner. But having moved back where the South is such a distinct place and it does have kind of a culture and character. I think I've told the story on the air 
I'll tell it again. I, this is a few years ago, went to Kroger to buy something in the organic section from my, for my mom. I couldn't find either the comestible that she wanted, nor could I find the organic section. So I go and I ask the butcher, the guy who like doesn't know at all whatever everything is. He can't help me, but a complete stranger in Atlanta says, oh, I know where that is. Here, let me help you. So instead of just telling me where it was, he could easily have kind of pointed across the way and say, that's, that's where the organic section is. No, he walks me over there. Not only does he walk me to the organic section, he helps me find the item that I'm looking for. Now, again, I've been in Eugene for the past, whatever, eight years when this happens. And I remember thinking, oh, the South is so different. This would never mm. happen in Eugene. I don't know that it never, I'm not, I'm not claiming in any way that people from Eugene are not kind. They're very kind, but there's a sort of that, that hospitality that the South is known for, I think is a very genuine thing. And along with that, of course, comes the kind of like legacy of that the South is a different cut of cloth than the Northeast, than the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest. And I think that this book is a decidedly Southern Southerner telling a story from a Southern point of view. And this is our first time going with him away from the South. Right. And so, yeah, that helps me think about like, what he means by the genie soul of Chicago? It's not the South. It's this kind of like place without a place. Right. Yes. And I think that it is um, significant that I think the structure of this section is pretty brilliant. The idea of them getting on a train and there's no, I loved how at the beginning of this section, uh, they, when they decide, Kate convinces him to take her along and he's just being really agreeable, right? His monosyllables. Yes, sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, and, and she goes and I, close reader that I am, did not know they were doing anything deviant or I thought it was oh, kind of yeah. weird. Yeah. Like I thought it was kind of strange. Um, and I thought, oh, I guess 1961, you could take a woman on a trip who's like basically your sister and, um, and everybody seems fine with that. And I thought it was brilliant how it comes out at the end of the section that they had done this really, you know, this, this terrible thing in, in Aunt Emily's mind. Um, so I thought he succeeded in like the trick he, at least for me, maybe I'm no. just easily duped, but I think he succeeded for me in the trick that he was trying to pull. Um, and I, and I loved the, the metaphor of the train and the, like the leave. I think he'd, he also did a really good job of writing the disorientation of this section, which huh. probably just feels like confusion to the average reader, myself included, because I did have to reread this section in chunks and as a whole. I had to read it and then reread it and then reread yes. it again. Because <laughs> yes. um, it's confusing. And the pronouns, as you mentioned, get mixed up. And I'm not sure who he's talking about. And um, so... But I loved the idea of him like leaving the South with Kate, going on this like mystical train ride journey 
into and then kind of being absorbed into this placeless place with this personless person, mm. both of them. Mm. And um and then it, and, and the whole the whole section has this very dreamlike, disorienting quality to it. And although it's confusing, I think structurally it accomplishes exactly what Percy's trying to accomplish, which is the confusion of the modern human and how that feels. I hear you. I thought it was weird. I hear you. I think you're you're making a good case for what Walker Percy intended. I will confess. I was trying to do, yeah. I think it's actually a shortcoming in our author. I, I, mm. I, I, part of the reason why we're hesitant to be critical on this show is because we try to give so much credence to the authors. And, and our authors are making the rules of the world that they're asking us to step into, right? Mm. And so to, mm. I think to properly evaluate or to be critical of a novelist, you kind of have to be critical of them according to the rules that they set up. So you wouldn't um, complain that George Herbert's Dune is unrealistic because it has um, <laughs> right. giant worms. Yeah, yeah, because we all know there aren't really giant worms. No, this is part of the world that George Herbert set up in Dune, and we suspend our belief, provided, provided that the rules of the world are consistently employed. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and for me, I think we have seen confusion in our main character and also in our secondary character, Kate. We've seen confusion and we've seen meandering and we've, we've felt this sense of lostness. I just don't know that that's what's happening in this section. <laughs> I mean, go on, please go maybe, on. I maybe. have a criticism too, but it's maybe different. It's than different, yours. okay. But um, I'm. I want you to please explain that more fully. I, I feel like when Binks Binks is on this search, we know that from pretty early on, like maybe page five, we know he's on this search, and the search gets derailed from time to time. It gets derailed when he's going to see a movie. But even when he sees a movie, there's this sense of um, if it works out too well for the main character, then we feel like, oh, man, the malaise has set in because this main character in this movie is actually kind of ignoring the big question that Binks is wrestling with. Okay. He also, we get derailed with Banks when he goes on this trip with Sharon. Um, but it's very clearly intended to be a step away from the search in mm-hmm. favor of some sort of kind of like pleasure, the, the joy of this female's company who he doesn't really seem to be invested in. So it's just kind of a, a, like a carnal recreation sort of trip. And I understand that. And so, but then when we return to the search, it's we sense Binks's confusion and it works. It works because this is the problem with a modern person in the modern age is that we don't quite know what we're doing other than to gratify our appetites, maybe to live some sort of an ethical life a la Aunt Emily, a la 
the TV show, This I Believe. Um, we know that we're supposed to do those things, but beyond that, we're lost in the cosmos. And there's this feeling that we have when Binks is narrating his story that we're lost in the cosmos. We're not quite sure what to do. This section of the book, section four, I did not feel lost in the cosmos with Binks. I felt lost for a plot. I felt lost for pursuit of the search. I lost a sense of like a, a, a kind of groping path toward resolving the search. So that's the part that I, I think our novelist, it's a shortcoming in the novel for me. What, what about you, Heidi? I think you're making a really compelling point. Um, I, I think that um, the, and I think it ties somewhat into my complaint, I guess, about the novel, which is um, I can't, he has succeeded, Percy has succeeded so well in creating the modern man character that I kind of don't like either of them at all. You don't like so, either either of what? Either Binks or Kate. I see, I see, yeah. Like I don't, I don't, I, as I was reading this section, I was like, I don't care if he saves her. I don't care mm. what happens to them. They're so unlikable. And um, with one, I think, really brilliant exception that did kind of haunt me. And, mm. and maybe this was intended. That section when they sleep together and she's drifting off to, and it's terrible and neither of them want it. And all they want mm. is to want something, right? Like they just, they want to have some kind of like visceral experience because they're, as we talked about in the last episode, their belly and their head has no mediator. So they're yeah. always experiencing one or the other to an extreme. And, and they just want to, he, she wants and needs him to create this visceral experience for her and he doesn't want to do it it's just painful yeah and then at the end there when she says that she's very like gross and crass with him and then um on page 201 um look at us binks my vagabond friends as good as cried out to me we're sinning we're succeeding mm -hmm. we're human after all and then her comment there, good night, sweet Whipple. Now you tuck Kate in. Poor Kate. She turns the pillow over for the cool of the underside. Good night, sweet Whipple. Good night. Good night. Good night. That's the one moment in this entire novel that I've had any kind of like sense of pathos on behalf of Kate. Did and just instead broken? of finding her like an... Oh, more, it's, I don't mind Worse broken characters. Yeah. She seems so <sighs> myopically and self-centeredly and intentionally callow adolescent to me. I'm asking Just though, like, in this, in this yeah, particular in section. This, yeah. In this section and that little, then I'm finally, <laughs> 
she always walks into the room wounds first, right? And everyone's trying to take care of her and she's utterly dismissive of everyone's attempts to help her. Mm. And partly because she's selfish and self-centered and partly because she can't conceive of any kind of way that anybody might be able to help her. Um, and she's truly despairing and in touch with that. And um, in a way that, you know, I guess for some readers might be potentially refreshing juxtaposed with Binks's secret secrets, you know, yeah. um, I don't find it that way. I just find it just annoying. Mm. Like a little bit like get over, like yeah. think about somebody other than yourself for like one minute. But that little, that little thing, that little, that little moment, that interlude showed, I think like a depth of humanity that did finally awaken my compassion for Kate. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know if I've, I've just been reading it as like, that's a flaw in me, not a flaw in the book. Um, that's my own, you know, lack of compassion or whatever to a truly hurting character. And I just can't, you know, it, she's just, for some reason, I have some kind of block to my compassion for her. Um, and maybe, maybe that's true, or maybe um, he's intentionally drawing her to be unlikable so that we can truly see what it is to be lost in modernity and to be in that depth of despair. I'm not sure which it is, but I will say in that particular moment, I did feel like a very deep sense of compassion. And when she talks about being tucked in like this, this childlike, the childlike desire to be, um, and, and, valid need to be held and to be loved even when you're sad you know the same way that you'd gather up a child who's has their feelings hurt um and i just thought somebody ought to hold her someone ought to love her someone ought to ought to be able to respond with some with some true meaningful connection rather yeah. than just kind of a uh you know a list of fashionable psychiatrists in New York who might be able to finally break through and help her to find herself, you know, yeah. the way Sam was talking about her. So, you know, Heidi, I have read Kate against the backdrop of this kind of um, Southern type that I feel like I know really well, that I feel like I went to high school with and that lives uh -huh. on the, the, the northern part of Buckhead, this really wealthy part of Atlanta. I've been reading Kate that way, and my description of that type is um, I've read Kate as very well-spoken, mm -hmm. very pretty, right. very well-dressed, mm -hmm. very socially privileged and socially secure. And right. um, probably kind of like expected to live in a dollhouse by almost yes. everyone around her, right? And so yes. I, I, I think I can have a little bit more. It's easy for me to have sympathy with Kate because I see at the beginning of the book, she is either choosing or because she's kind of internally collapsing. She can't fake it anymore. She can't do that she can't be the social butterfly. She can't put on the beautiful clothes and go out for a stroll and meet and greet people in the street. She just can't do that anymore. And so I think that I have kind of cast that cast her as a character that I know really well. And I think 
the beginning of her collapse is kind of the beginning of her salvation in a, in a way. And I don't, I have not minded so much that she is so selfish that she doesn't seem to have much interest or respect for other people because I kind of think, yeah, you know what? She's finally decided that she's going to stop dancing and she's just going to kind of let herself fall apart and it's what she's got to do. It may, it may look pretty selfish. Maybe it is pretty selfish, but it's kind of the requirement for moving toward the other side, towards some sort of salvation. Right. I think that that is the right response to Kate. And I think that um, she, I mean, I have not finished the novel yet. Um, I've read a little bit ahead, but I haven't finished it and I don't know how it ends. But my hope is exactly what you're saying, that her honest collapse is the catalyst for uh they're kind of united salvation. They're not doubles of each other in a literary sense, right. um, but they are complementary characters. Um, and there is this, this bond that is now ratified by the fact that they've slept together on the train. Mm. And I think that's significant in the literary sense because it's that journey, right? This like dreamlike journey, um, almost like a descent, a descent into hell Mm. as a united front, right? And then they're called either that or it's a fleeing from hell. I'm not sure which, but um, that now they've been called back and they have to reckon with and face what they've done. Um, And, but it's the only actual thing that's like happened in the novel, you know, like it's one of those plotless novels. Right. Right. There's it because of that, because of that, even though it's just, they went on a train for one night and then they had to come home because they got in trouble. Like there's, it obviously means something very significant to the novel because it is, you know, the one thing that's happened. Yeah. And it's the one thing that's happened. And by the way, it's so oblique. So parents who are reading this, like if you're worried that there's going to, if you're not playing the audio book in front of your kids, I think your kids, unless they're of a certain age, are going to zoom right past this and not know what happened. Yeah, it is. It's hidden. It's, yeah, I think that's probably fair. So even it's like this one plot point, even the plot point can kind of be, you can kind of gloss over it a little bit because it's hidden. It's in this kind of somewhat obscure language. You know what's happening if you're an adult, but even the, even the central, like, I don't know, I'm not going to say central plot point, but this outstanding plot point can be missed. Mm -hmm. Um, Heidi, there's a section that I want to read that, and I want to hear your feedback about where Kate is. The section is on 194, and I thought we could read it together. Um, you, Kate, and me, Banks, obviously. So it begins with um, 193. About two-thirds of the way down, Kate says, you remind me of a prisoner in the death house. I wonder if we could read that uh, for the next few pages down to uh, Kate mentioned suicide. I'd love to hear what you think about where Kate is during this section. Right. 
Okay. You remind me of a prisoner in the death house who takes a wry pleasure in doing things like registering to vote. Come to think of it, all your gaiety and good spirits have the same death house quality. No thanks. I've had enough of your death house pranks. What is there to lose? Can't you see that after what happened last night, it is no use. I can't play games now, but don't you worry. I'm not going to swallow all the pills at once. Losing hope is not so bad. There's something worse. Losing hope and hiding it from yourself. Very well. Lose hope or not. Be afraid or not. But marry me anyhow, and we can still walk abroad on a summer night, hope or no hope, shivering or not, and see a show and eat some oysters down on the magazine. No, no. I don't understand. You're right. You don't understand. It is not some one thing as you think. It is everything. It's all so monstrous. What is monstrous? I told you everything. I'm not up to it. Having a little hubby? You would be hubby, dearest Sphinx, and that's ridiculous. Did I hurt your feelings? Seeing hubby off in the morning, having lunch with the girls, getting tight in Eddie and Nell's house, and having a little humbug with somebody else's hubby, wearing my little diaphragm and raising my two lovely boys, and worrying for the next 20 years about whether they'll make Princeton. I told you we would live in Gentilly or Modesto. I was being ingenious, like you. Do you want to live like Sam or Joel? Banks, Banks, you're just like your aunt. When I told her how I felt, she said to me, Catherine, you're perfectly right. Don't ever lose your ideals and your enthusiasm for ideas. She thought I was talking about something literary or political or great books, for God's sake. I thought to myself, is that what I'm doing? And ran out and took four pills. Incidentally, they're all wrong about that. They all think any minute I'm going to commit suicide. What a joke. The truth, of course, is the exact opposite. Suicide is the only thing that keeps me alive. Whenever everything else fails, all I have to do is consider suicide. And in two seconds, I'm as cheerful as a nitwit. But if I could not kill myself, ah, then I would. I can do without Nimbutal or murder mysteries, but not without suicide. Heidi, what is, what is Kate looking for? <clears throat> I, she seems to really push back hard when Binks suggests, hey, they get married and they kind of live a normal life. Don't you think that right. she's kind of pushing back against that? Uh, she is. I think that she's, she's in a tough spot and I do have... I do have compassion on this. Mm. To your point, she is, she's doing everything that she knows how to do to escape from this weight of expectation, this meaningless life, so to speak, in her mind. And in that way, she is kindred to Binks, even though they're very different characters, because his biggest fear is the everydayness, right? And her biggest fear, I think, is not really that as much as it is the in on the in the lack of authenticity and mm-hmm. in, in the life of expectation and wealth and privilege. It all just feels so meaningless to yeah. her. Um, and so her kindred spirit then is Binks. And because she knows that he also feels that as contrasted with Sam, mm-hmm. who seems like he has the potential for great depth, but has chosen the path of Aunt Emily. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like he's living in culture and he's writing novels that get good reviews from yeah. this Southern magazines. And he is, uh, live, he's kind of chosen to follow that. I'm going to be an interesting cultured person, um, and leave off where transcendence begins. But these two are actually on a search. Mm-hmm. Um, but the solution that he offers her is to marry him, which means for him, everydayness, and for her, the meaningless life of a Southern socialite. Yeah. So yeah. in coming together, they are then... I mean, they're in an impossible situation, a paradox, right? In which if they choose each other, they're choosing the only person in the world who under, that they know of who understands their search, who's also a moviegoer, so to speak. Yeah. But on the other hand, they are then choosing the very life that both of them are terrified and have decided to reject. So Banks, I mean by Binks kind of suggesting, Hey, we could have a life like Sam's that to her, that to her just smacks of giving up, choosing inauthenticity, rejecting search. So. Yeah. Becoming yeah. like Sam who they both like Sam. Right. But Sam is just the next generation of aunt Emily. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and they both, admire and revere Aunt Emily and are afraid of her and respect her. And, but they understand, you know, that scene when she is um, at the beginning of this section, it would struck me really powerfully at the time when Aunt Emily is there, they're like in that little alcove, it's such a brilliant image. I can like see it in my head. Yeah. Yeah. He really is so good at description to your point. You've said mm-hmm. that a couple of times, but they're in that alcove over the dining room and they can see the dinner taking place, but they're not a part of it. And Binks is watching Aunt Emily like stroking that wooden lion. Yes. That's there. Yes. And it kind of harps on the wooden lion. And I thought, what a brilliant symbolic representation of their life. Uh-huh. Right. It's like the wooden lion, the fake lion, the statue of a lion, not the actual lion. Mm. Right, a yeah. copy, a facsimile that's lifeless, and but Aunt Emily is like stroking it, yeah. like she's attached to it. It is like it is, it is her identity, right? But it is, it's not the real thing. Yeah, and and that I think is what both of them reject about Aunt Emily, even though she's like a delightful woman and any of us would want to go to one of her dinner parties. I'd love to go to one of her dinner parties, but I'd also then like to go home and live an authentic life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, I think one of the triumphs of the book is that the bad guys are so likable. And I don't Mm, mean like the Joker is likable in Dark Knight Returns. Like he's so likable because he's so devious and he does what everyone else is afraid to do. No, these are genuinely genial people, but they're, they're is haunting. They're not the, the real thing. They're not yeah. the real thing. It's like this crisis of cordiality is huh. constantly a great threatening. Way of putting it. it. And it threatens them. And I think both Kate and Banks recognize that if they slipped into that, like Sam, maybe they would never come back. There's a fragility to their search that they um, 
can't let they, they have to preserve the fragility of the search. Mm. Um, so Heidi, we are beckoned back near the end of this section, section four by aunt Emily. Um, we go back and it's fat Tuesday. That's part of the reason why Binks and Kate have a really hard time getting back to New Orleans or near New Orleans because it's Fat Tuesday and all the trains and all the planes are clogged up with merrymakers. But they do make it back. Um, and there's a little section that I'd like to read about Binks on the train. He meets a young man, and the young man is he's trying to decide like who this young man is. He's reading a book. There's an opportunity for each of them to kind of find each other, to kind of befriend each other. Uh, I'm going to read it beginning on two fourteen across to two fifteen. The romantic sits across the aisle, slumped gracefully, one foot propped on the middle ledge. He's reading the charter house of Parma. His face is extraordinarily well-modeled and handsome. His head is too small, and arising as it does from the great color of his car coat, it makes him look a bit of a dandy and dudish. Two things I am curious about. How does he sit? Immediately graceful and not aware of it, or immediately graceful and aware of it? How does he read the Charter House of Parma? (laughs) Immediately as a man who is in the world, and who has an appetite for the book as he might have an appetite for peaches, or immediately as one who finds himself under the necessity of sticking himself into the world in a certain fashion, of slumping in an acceptable slump, of reading an acceptable book in an ex- on an acceptable bus. Is he a romantic? He is a romantic. His posture is the first clue. It is too good to be true, this distillation of all graceful slumps. To clinch matters, he catches sight of me and my book and goes into a spasm of recognition and shyness. To put him out of his misery, I go over and ask him how he likes his book. For a tenth of a second, he eyes me to make sure that I'm not a homosexual. But he has already seen Kate with me and sees her now, lying asleep and marvelously high in the hip. I have observed that it is no longer possible for one young man to speak unwarily to another not known to him, except in certain sections of the South and West, and certainly not with a book in his hand. (laughs) As for me, I've already identified him through his shyness. It is pure heterosexual shyness. He is no homosexual, but merely a romantic. Now he closes his book and stares hard as if he would, by dint of staring alone, tear from it its soul in a word. It's very good, he says at last and blushes. The poor fellow. He has just begun to suffer from it. This miserable trick in the romantic plays, this miserable trick the romantic plays upon himself of setting just beyond his reach the very thing he prizes. For he prizes just such a meeting, the chance meeting with a chance friend on a chance bus, a friend he can talk to unburden himself of some of his terrible longings. Now, having encountered such a one, me, the rare bus friend, of course, he strikes himself dumb. It is the case for direct questioning. I read that section because in one page, I think Walker Percy does this really 
wonderful job of capturing kind of the essence of this young man um, and, and, and identifying as Binks does in some way with this man who Percy describes as a romantic. Um, and it's a wonderful interlude and it's, and it has this great kind of bright psychological intuition about this stranger that he's just met on, uh, the bus. I said the train earlier, but the bus and I love it. And I have to say, Heidi, at the same time, I'm like, why is it in this book? (laughs) Why is it in the book? You know what I mean? Am I, am I being overly critical? Am I being like this, like plot driven reader who just insists on cutting away all like extraneous things that don't relate, you know, strictly to the search that Binks and Kate are on? Is it, am I being a bad reader? Cause it's a delightful section. I'm not denying that at all. I think it's like, it's a wonderful little episode, but mm-hmm. if you were the editor of this book, would you say, Walker, bad news, got to cut it. Maybe I might, I might, if not for that line on page 216 that ends the whole section about what the romantic. It? What is it? What's that line? Um, page 216. I'll read, I'll read. It's like it stuck in a paragraph. In fact, there's nothing more to say to him. The best one can do is deflate the pressure a bit, the terrible romantic pressure and leave him alone. And here's the line. Mm. He is a moviegoer, though, of course, he does not go to the movies. (laughs) So I think that's my favorite that's, I think that's my favorite line in the whole novel so far. Um, in a novel of incredibly, just like some really good sentences and some really good lines, but that yeah. I think is my favorite. So what do you think about that line? Can you interpret it for us? I think it's, um, it is, by the way, it's, it's a great line and it's great in its construction also. There's kind of a parallelism mm-hmm. that's really, really satisfying. So, He's so a moviegoer. Though, of course, he does not go to the movies. I I read Binks as seeing um, the romantic as he is choosing a similar path of distraction from the search as Binks chooses when he goes to the movies. The romantic does not go to the movies. He does something else. Perhaps he adopts a pose perhaps he kind of like retreats into his romantic self there are a variety of different kind of techniques that he might use but i think bink sees him as kind of employing a technique just as binks has employed a techniques to kind of keep his eyes away from the sad reality of the modern age hmm. what do you think is that is that a fair reading Yeah, I think that's very well said. I mean, the the question I kept having is like, I thought he was going to go to a lot of movies, and he's gone to like four movies, which I mean, that's a lot of movies, I guess, in a couple days. But I thought the movies were going to be a greater preoccupation of the novel than they Mm -hmm, are. mm -hmm. But of course, the movie going is is itself a, a an objective correlative of the search right? He's going to the movies because he's on the search and he wants to find in these stories that uh, a 
A clue? You know, an answer. An a clue, answer? An answer. A, a, even, you know, movies are this wish fulfillment fantasy, right? That's what so many of us think. We go, to, we go to see a superhero movie because we don't have superpowers, so we go see it in a movie, right? But the... What, what he's saying is none of the movies satisfy my wishes, right? He has that lovely, that, that whole section in the, be, in the beginning of the book that we read out loud in the first, I think in the first time we talked about this story, that um, the problem with the movies is that they're all the same. The, the, the hero, you know, wins the woman and then they settle down and they go to a life of unbearable everydayness. Yeah immediately. And, and he can't understand that. He can't reconcile that, but he keeps going to the movies because he's on the search and he keeps trying. Right. And so there's, you know, there's, there's such a incredible kind of metaphorical, metaphysical, you know, allegorical search there um, for the universal things. And that is the same thing that this romantic boy that he sees wants. Yeah. Um, it's the same. He's on the same. Basically, what he's saying is he's on the same search. Right. And he's looking for, instead of going to the movies, he has these romantic ideals about traveling and meeting a woman and, yes. you know, wherever he's going. And that is to this romantic boy the same search, the same representation of the search that Binks is on by going to the movies. Right. Um, and so that idea of a kindred spirit, I think. Um, is worth exploring, although to your point, I think he might go on and on a little bit too long about it. <laughs> so. uh, Heidi, next week we read section four in the epilogue, the closing two sections of our book. Uh, what are we looking for going into these last two sections in the last, in the last, well, our, the penultimate podcast in this series? I am really excited about being a fly on the wall for his conversation with Aunt Emily and all of the aftermath of mm -hmm. she sounded pretty mad at the yeah. end of this section. Yeah, she did. And I'd like to see her mad. I'm excited about the opportunity to watch and not experience it myself because right. I confess that I'm a little afraid of this fictional grand. She's stern, zone. isn't she? She's stern. <laughs> She's intense. She's intimidating. She um, really is. And I'm looking for either a, if I were to make a prediction, either a total resolution or a complete breakdown of his relationship with his family. Right. Right. I'm looking to see what his relationship with Kate, which mm -hmm. it seems now is inevitable. There's going to be some relationship with Kate if suicide is kind of forbidden if everyday marriage is forbidden, then what's the solution? Then under what pretext can they join together? So I'm curious about how that relationship is going to work. Right. And the search. I do, I do, want, I do want Binks to find something. Yes. You no, know, I don't. I'm not... I'm not expecting an altar call or anything like that. Right. And that would be terribly unsatisfying actually. And just a giant cop out. And since this is on the top 100 books of the 20th century, I'm assuming that doesn't happen, right. but I would like to, I would like to see, I would be sad if the book ends with the same despair with that it began with. Yeah. 
I would too. And and I doubt that he's going to leave us there. That's my hunch. So he's probably not going to leave us there. Hey, if you are a listener to this show, you know that you should be on the Facebook page, the Close Reads Discussion Facebook page, if you're not already. So I'm only going to speak right now to those who are not on the Close Reads Facebook page. Okay. Get what are there. the reasons why you're not there? We, yeah, we miss you when we haven't even met you. Maybe the reasons are, you know what? I don't want Zuckerberg to have more of my information. Well, great <laughs> news. Zuckerberg has put in place um, ways to protect your own privacy. So you can like flip all the privacy tags that you want to and hopefully keep your identity almost completely hidden from Big Brother. Uh, maybe you just think, you know what? I, I'm already I'm on Facebook and I've joined the cl- the Close Reads discussion group, but I just don't really want to say anything. I don't want to actually chime in. And what? Where's this? Is I, why not? Like all of your friends <laughs> are waiting to meet you. You haven't met them yet. We're just all waiting to meet you. So don't be shy. So true. If you have ever spoken out loud to your speaker in response to anything that we've said on this yes, podcast, which you... is how I was before I was a contributor. When I was, you know, li- a listener, I remember specifically talking to you, Tim. What did you talk to me we about? Were, do you remember? I do. It was when we were talking about, or when when we, I wasn't even there. See how much <laughs> I, this is, this is what happens when you get invested in podcasts. Right. We were all having a conversation, which was me having right. an imaginary monologue about, it was when y'all were reading Ghosts Out of Watchmen. And I mm. remember sweeping my floor and Scooby, you said something about it. You said something. And I was like, no. That's not it. And I was much less gentle in my sweeping my kitchen than I ever am when I'm really talking to you because now you're my friend. So um, I wish I could have heard that. Well, just wish you would have been right about it, but no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Anyway, we want to hear from you. If you are willing to share your thoughts, please, please be willing to join the Facebook group and share your thoughts. Tim and I are very active and David usually is just right now. He's opening a bookstore. So for some reason, we can't just while away the hours on Facebook, but. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. If you just want to kind of like see short little uh 150 now it's like 280 possible words i guess on twitter and if you want to see some great gram uh postings visual postings about what's happening in the close reads podcast world please join us there uh we're delighted that you join us for these last four episodes please join us for the final episode and for our q a we would love to hear from you Until then, thanks again for joining us, and as always, happy reading.